Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Maggs with a brisk 30 minutes on the latest in South African and global news. We're live and then up as a podcast. We'll bring you insightful interviews with key business and political figures, prominent newsmakers, leading experts, all packed into a concise, informative update. It's Tuesday, the 30th of January. Coming up, the Zuma suspension from the ANC. Is there a chance of a violent reaction? How South Africa will lobby the United Nations Security Council over the ICJ ruling? How poor intelligence fueled the 2021 riots in KwaZulu-Natal? And how to get work-at-home employees back to the office? The ANC's National Executive Committee has unanimously agreed to suspend former President Jacob Zuma's ANC membership. It comes after the former president's open support for the small but rival MKV party. So where does this leave the African National Congress? I'm in conversation now with commentator TK Pue. TK, first of all, why did this decision, do you think, from the ANC take so long? No, absolutely. That's what I mean. Uh, it took so long because I think it's a very precarious position the NC finds itself in. If we had to really zone in on the key issue is where MK, I know they're going to say they're across South Africa, but it's key bases in KZN. And that's where the second largest voter base comes from. And that's where the ANC is also in a very precarious situation. So it took long because I think they're just trying to do the numbers to see what's the best tech of action to ensure that they can kind of survive this MK onslaught and also in a way not totally get rid of the president because they didn't uh, expel him, they suspended him. So, Fikili Mbulula, the Secretary General, expressing concerns at the weekend about a potential revolt in KwaZulu-Natal following the suspension. What's your reading then? I think it is to be expected, but I hope the direction is not going towards that it's going, it's going to be what we had on the, the, the June riots uh, a few years ago because that really was, I'd say, it was a failure of uh, the governance and uh, intelligence. So that should be factored in. But I think if he's saying in tenure within the ANC, this is going to cause a ruckus, within the province of KZN, it's already causing a ruckus. So it's correct there. So how significant is the support base for Jacob Zuma in the region as far as MKV is concerned? And are there measures then that the ANC might take to ne- mitigate those negative re- uh, repercussions that you've just referred to? At this moment, it's a bit unknown, but I think there's a survey that came out of uh, months back which said, look, uh, people interviewed in KZN. It was a small sample, less than 2,000. And it was almost like one in three individuals still hold the, him. To, they, they still love him in KZN. So the issue is not to say, look, he's going to get 50%. That, that's not, I think, what he needs. Remember, the NC is only at 56%, if I'm not mistaken, in KZN. If he just gets close to five and the IFP continues its trajectory, it's enough to destabilize the ANC in that province. Mm. The ANC's decision to suspend him was, and I'm going to quote Fakili Mbalula, unanimous and not contentious. Uh, so try and read the, the party tea leaves if you can. I'm wondering how this reflects overall sentiment within the party regarding Zuma's actions. Have they just had enough, do you think? It's more the issue of itself, uh, its self-preservation. Uh, there, there's a reason why no one, if we, it is to believe, and I always tend to think when you listen to the SG, you must always take things with a pinch of salt. Uh, it's, it's an issue of saying, listen, they've had enough, but it's a very, they can't really make that contention because he is 
the creation of people like Fikilemba Lula. So if you look at what might happen behind the scenes then, is this does this have the potential to have an impact on internal party unity and and, and, and internal dynamics, particularly in relation to the known allies that Jacob Zuma has got that sit within the NEC? Uh, no, most definitely. I, I think the major people in the NEC, the ones who've already had national exposure, nothing really there will change. It's more people in your your counties and 30 municipalities of KZN and people who felt, you know, disgruntled. And you have to have to remember, the NEC's list, when they do present who's going to be there, who are they going to take into parliament or even the legislatures, the disgruntled members from that outfall will also just dictate, you know, who might just decide to say, hey, look, I've got nothing to lose. Let me join the man. So does this mean now that Jacob Zuma has got carte blanche to forge ahead? And will he, and necessary. will he, and will he do that, do you think? Not necessarily, because if you actually read uh, Rule 25.666 and the way it's worded is to say until they really do go through the formal processes and move from suspension to expulsion, Jacob Zuma has all the right to say, listen, I think they've given him a few days to respond. And then there's other processes which actually allow him to say, look, I'm not happy with the decision. Let's basically redo this. And it's actually the biggest free publicity he'll get if he keeps dragging this on. And we know from his history, he has no problems dragging on processes. But we also know, um, TK, that he's got a notoriously thin skin, is that surely he's going to come out fighting here. Of course, and I, and I think that's what he was betting on. It. It's almost as though he's doing uh, a repeat of what happened in 2009, 2008, when President Becky, uh, I think, had asked him to step down as deputy president. He loves the, being the aggrieved individual in the story. So, inevitably, this is going to end up in court as well, isn't it? It has to be, and I think that's why they went for a suspension as opposed to an expo- uh, maybe an expulsion. And also maybe kind of goes back to the question you asked. If, it, if I think they really had the numbers and they didn't really think it was a factor, they would have just gone for a straight expulsion. So I guess going for this is a way of also saying, listen, ANC members who want to stay, you see we're giving him a chance and he's just basically rebutting us. But strategically, as far as Jacob Zuma is concerned, it's also a very clever move because de facto the suspension now becomes an election issue. Exactly. I think, as I say, cricket, he's played a bit of a blinder in the sense that he's really backed them into, into a corner. And it's just basically, he's just backing away and he knows when to come in and when to come out. Because it, it really puts more questions to the ANC. And the key thing you said is, why not simply just expel the man like you did with people like Carl Niehaus and other individuals? But the worry, of course, is, as we discussed earlier, the propensity for violence. And uh, as inevitable as that sounds, it's something that the province of KwaZulu-Natal and the country can ill afford. I'd say the violence has already started. If you remember the, the news that happened yesterday about the CEO of Rand Water, yes. unfortunately, because our security system, let's say the trust of security system is so weak, I think we've already started to see political killings for the last two, three years. You're right in saying, look, the history of KZN kind of makes it something more exponential. But in this regard, I hope government really is prepared to say, listen, we cannot go through this based on an individual. They need to get the house in order. Appreciate your point of view. Commentator TK Poe, thank you very much indeed. MoneyWeb at Midday, for all your up-to-date stories. President Ramaphosa says South Africa will turn to the United Nations Security Council to ensure that the judgment of the International Court of Judgment against Israel is implemented. The attention, as you probably know, now switches to New York, and Obed Bapela is a deputy minister and has an eye on the issue for his party. So, Mr. Bapela, first of all, what specific strategies is South Africa going to employ to lobby other countries to exert pressure on Israel to comply with the court order? Yes, there are. 
the president will be going to the AU in February this year, and where he will then give an account and a report and obviously soliciting the voice of a united AU on the matter. And we hope then it will be one of the resolutions emerging, as he did during the Nanaline movement, which was held early this year in Uganda, chaired by President Museveni. And uh, we will then continue also to lobby for the meeting of the Security Council, UN Security Council that is sitting this week. Uh, those member states, including those who are on the rotational basis, the Africa delegation, and we'll also be engaging them. But we know that the system there is a veto system. If one vetoes, then it will collapse, whatever is an unanimous decision. But we hope, I think, census will also emerge because the ICJ is the structure of the UN. And then the UN must then be seen to be listening from the recommendations that emerges from its own structures. And it is a test for the UN that uh, since the establishment of the ICJ after the Second World War, it is the first case that has such a significant impact on the court itself having to pronounce the way it has pronounced. So the respect of the international rule of law is what we're expecting the United Nations as a body of the global or nations really to begin to listen to its structures. But you will agree you still have a, a tough job ahead of you, particularly in navigating the complexities of the Security Council. As you've mentioned, the veto power held by certain member states, it's going to be difficult to ensure a favorable outcome in line with those recommendations. Oh, definitely it's going to be difficult, particularly from the U.S., which is an ally of Israel. Uh, they are giving them arms, they are giving them finance, and uh, and they've been financing what is happening in Gaza. I do not know what is their view, because it was skirmish, you know, even last week when they were either welcoming, they said no, the court, as predicted, they said things that they've been saying. But in the recommendations, particularly on the interim measures, even though the ceasefire weight was not used, we didn't get the ceasefire. But certain elements of the humanitarian assistance issue is high up. The killing of the civilians, hospitals, bombing of the hospital schools also needs to be prevented. Whilst obviously the ICJ still has a lot of work to go on site to go and do investigation to determine whether the genocide has been committed. These acts of the interim measures are very good, uh, which is a beginning Mm -hmm. that might also lead to the ceasefire. But I know the United States of America will obviously use their veto. But let's hope that human sense will prevail, because the case is not just just about Palestine, it's also about humanity, it's about the human rights, uh, which was the basis of UK and Russia when they established the court at the time and became signatories of the court. So let's then begin to go to the principles of why we had established these structures. We think there's a genocide, but let's allow the ICJ to conclude its investigation and then but prevent further killings. That is what we want to achieve. I want to come back to the African Union meeting in February. You seem to be pinning a lot of hopes on support as far as that block is concerned. Are there specific arguments or incentives that South Africa will present to AU member countries? Well, there are no incentives. We are going there on the basis of the principles that we are upholding on human rights, culture, on human humanity, 
on a situation that is happening before our eyes that everybody can see every day the bombings, the killings, and the removal of people from their homes into an open space. Winter is coming in that particular environment, or is winter already. And that is a human catastrophe that is happening. And I think every consciousness within every leader that is a member of the AU, speaking against what you see every day, it's what we are now going to be provoking their consciousness to say. The voice of South Africa and the case of South Africa was so compelling that even the ICJ has agreed with elements uh, of our arguments. So in the AU, I don't see anyone going against that. However, we are aware that there are those countries that will be silent, those will be afraid to be associated, those that might abstain. But a resolution, so long as we get a majority, that there's no veto in the AU. So long as we can converse the majority, which is 50 plus one, that can really agree with the sentence or a paragraph that supports the outcome of the SGA, that will be a a victory on on our side. Is South Africa playing a very risky diplomatic game at the moment, given that you've got to balance relations and foreign policy objectives on the one hand, while advocating for compliance with the ICJ's order on the other, and there is a direct connection between this and economic and trade imperatives? Well, definitely we are aware of the associated risks, We are now beginning to discuss them. We have heard, obviously, in certain quarters about some people somewhere in the parts of the world, particularly in the U.S. and in Europe, who are now beginning to say South Africa is out of line, as they call it. And therefore, and as you correctly put it, that it's a balancing act that we have. But we are encouraged also by the statement by the Secretary of State, Blinken, when he said last week, that this has nothing to do with AGOA. It has nothing to do with the trade relations that are there. But probably they might then begin to look at other measures. I do not know what will it be. But we will definitely go there and argue and say human rights issue is not a war. It's not a declaration of war on Europe or on US. We are here to protect humanity and human rights. And if you want to punish us on that, why should it be? if we raise issues of human rights. Somebody somewhere should have raised it, and we are the ones who raised it. And I think there's a global voice of the masses on the ground, even against their own government positions all over the world, that are now beginning to be associating themselves with the outcome of the case. So we will definitely be engaging, but uh, the discussions have started at level of government. We'll also be having discussions in the ANC, to look at all those associated risks that have been pointed at us, but we hope we'll emerge with a view that says we were right, and therefore those who want to punish, they can punish us on the basis of raising a fundamental issue of human rights, the very foundation of the establishment of the United Nations and all its organs. And I think that's the issue. And then we also want to galvanize that voice out there on the streets. Somewhere in May, uh, I think those details will be given by uh, Reverend Frank Chikane as the international convener of the hosting in South Africa of an anti-Israel apartheid movement, where we want those voices to gather one place, take stock of what is the situation and how we support in solidarity towards the free of Palestine alongside the state of Israel, coexisting side by side with a two-state solution Mm. as a model 
that has been proposed, which we still support. Right. And we hope, therefore, that voice will then be the pressure voice for all the governments that have contrary views and decisions. We'll also throw in the issue of the risks that South Africa right. is facing, and uh, we'll then take it there uh, so that the citizens of the world who are so much pro the South African stance can then be galvanized into one direction and one point. Obed Bapella, thank you very much indeed. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. A South African Human Rights Commission investigative report into the 2021 KZN violence has revealed the extent of social media and and policy that uh, fueled the issue and resulted, you'll remember, in 350 people being killed and a price tag of around 50 billion rand when it came to damage. More now from Piake Mkolo, who is from the Cultural, Religious and Linguistic Commission, also part of that investigative process. He joins me now. And firstly, how does the report then address the possible broad motivation for the violence? Well, both the CRL Commission and the Human Rights Commission asked people who came as witnesses. Some, of course, brought their written submissions to the Human Rights Commission, but a number of others appeared before the CRL Commission. The information that was given to us as uh, part of the evidence, initially people were saying um, uh, the people reacted uh, or this thing started, uh, the, the unrest started because of the incarceration of the former president, Jacob Zuma. But as we probe further, others uh, indicated that that could have been uh, the reason initially, but later on the whole process got hijacked by criminality, which then seemed to be well orchestrated. So, But then in the case of the Sierra Commission, we did not pursue the issue of the relationship between the unrest and Jacob Zuma. However, the Human Rights Commission uh, expanded on that a little bit, but they could not find any link between the incarceration and the unrest, even though many people thought that, that was the case. You talk about the process being orchestrated, well orchestrated. By whom? Well, at the moment, that assignment has been given to the police to find out who are the people who were orchestrating that, because in terms of their mandate as the police, they need to find the perpetrators, they need to find the criminals so that they can deal with those. The report has been given to the police, and yesterday, in response to that, the Commissioner of Police also indicated that there are some people that were arrested uh, in the process of others for, for arrest. So, But what we are saying, when we were starting the investigation, both ourselves and the Human Rights Commission, people were saying there's a link, but uh, later on uh, it was discovered uh, through the evidence we received, uh, received by ourselves as well as the Human Rights Commission that criminality took over that whole process. Then that is the one part. The second part uh, that uh, was driving, among other things, this particular problem was the issue of the challenges, the economical challenges, uh, whereby people who are uh, coming from disadvantaged communities were in a way influenced to uh, be involved in activities of crime uh, in one way or the other. There was also reference to the deficiency of good intelligence. In the report of the Human Rights Commission, that was stated quite clearly that the, the 
the signs uh, before this unrest happened, and the police, or the police and the intelligence services, uh, either they were not ready or they were not capable to determine uh, the extent of the problem that was about to be unleashed in Phoenix. So that was um, stated in the Human Rights uh, Commission. That, that same report also spoke about a strained relationship between the Minister of Police and the Commissioner. Yeah, but that one, I can't talk much about it because uh, the Minister of Police appeared before the Human Rights Commission and he most probably stated his status and the condition of work and also the president did appear before the Human Rights Commission. He most probably stated the working relationship in his own setup as a president. Mr. Mkolo, what about the role of social media in all of this? Yeah, the issue of social media, again, uh, the findings of the Human Rights Commission, there is a recommendation that the national broadcaster and the Department of Communications, have, they have got to work together to raise the awareness amongst members of the community in terms of how they have to deal with uh, social media because some people just uh, receive uh, uh, WhatsApp messages or whatever form of a message and they forward it to other people and in that way indirectly or directly become part of those who are perpetrating something that may not necessarily uh, true because both in the hearings of the Human Rights Commission and also in our, human, in our, in our hearings, people did mention the, the role of the social media uh, to uh, which was spreading uh, wrong information and uh, in a way creating a, a lot of tensions amongst and between members of the communities. Having listened to all of this testimony, is there fear that this could happen again? Yeah. Well, from the side of the CRL Commission, in terms of our report, among other things, one of the things that we found was the whole issue of the adversarial relationship between the African community as well as the Indian community. Until and unless that particular problem is addressed, you are also having fertile ground for any other uh, problem that might arise. That's one problem. The second problem is the issue of racism. If you look at the way Phoenix is uh, created, it's one area that has got shops, that's got schools and all of that. And then if you look at the areas around Phoenix, uh, places such as Amawoti, Pambai, they don't have those uh, uh, services. So people flock almost you know, there is a small bridge, for instance, if you come from Amawati to Phoenix. It's a small bridge in the morning. We've got a queue of students who go to schools in Phoenix. In the afternoon, it's the same thing. Then you also have got people walking in that small bridge from Amawati, going to Phoenix for work, and then coming back in the afternoon. And if that part is not addressed, it will continue to become another potential explosion where people feel that the services are not given to them. One person that came and gave testimony to the CRL Commission ended up saying, you know, our life is in Phoenix. Clinics are in Phoenix, shops are in Phoenix, schools are in Phoenix, ATMs are in Phoenix, garages are in Phoenix. So if you if if you live in Amawati, you don't have any service. In fact, you are being dehumanized to the extent that you feel your life is not important, your area is not important. So what we are saying in our reports is that unless those issues of inequalities uh, services to be given to respective communities across the board, if those are not addressed, chances are that you are waiting for another thing that might uh, well, utilized by whoever uh, to cause an explosion. Thank you very much for joining me, Mpiake Mkolo, from the Cultural, Religious and Linguistic Commission. Money Web at Midday, for all your up-to-date stories.
And let's finish our express half hour with this story. Many companies are still battling to get employees to buy into the idea that they need to return to work after the COVID-19 interruption. One workplace expert believes that things are changing, though, as more organizations acknowledge the negative impact that fully remote working has had on morale and productivity. That person is Norman Kretzmer, who is founder and chief executive officer of Contract Understanding and is with me now on MoneyWeb at Midday. So firstly, why is the return debate still relevant? And if it is still relevant, what's the impact then on corporate culture? Culture is something that is learnt from watching people's behaviour. Culture isn't a document. Culture isn't something that you can learn from um, being something written down. Culture you get from seeing how people around you behave, how your managers behave, and that's how culture is inculcated into a business. And if people are sitting at home and just interacting via Teams or Zoom, that culture can't possibly be taught. You can't learn it by a remote call. And so I believe that you have to have some physical interaction, some actual presence in the office. It doesn't have to be all the time in the office, Mm. but some presence in the office to actually inculcate a culture. Do you think we maybe are reaching the point where we can develop a hybrid working culture? In other words, something completely different to the actual physicality that you're talking about? Yeah, I think that in many, depends on the business, of course, and it depends on the role. But certainly for many businesses, a hybrid business can work, which will obviously give rise to a particular culture, but it will, you still have some actual presence in an actual office or in a location where you can learn from people. And when I'm talking about learn, I'm not talking about learning the job. I'm talking about learning the culture, the behavior. So how then do you start to find the balance between in-office and the remote option? So what we did was we brought pretty much everybody back into the office some, well, it must be about two years ago now. And then we slowly looked at the various roles And we let people work hybrid first a a day a week and then two days a week and depending on on, on the role. So currently, all customer-facing people work in the office every day and other roles are in the office twice or three times Mm. a week. Norman, obviously it made sense during the, the COVID era, but why do you think we're still battling with this particular issue two, three years on? Well, I think that people enjoyed being at home to some degree it allowed them some personal time. It obviously, people didn't have to negotiate the traffic and uh, long commute. So obviously, that's an issue. But at the same point in time, some people have struggled at home as well because many people don't have appropriate working space. The interruptions from cleaners, pets, kids, and just being with your family all the time, it doesn't do great for people's relationship mm-hmm. either. We've got to the point now, I would imagine, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, where perhaps people have become too demanding in this respect in in wanting to work at home and companies have have given up. They've become too complacent. I think that there's a mixture of that. We're finding that we certainly can hire people who are happy to come into the office. As I said, some people are actually delighted or relieved to, to come into the office at least sometime during the week. And it depends on the role. So certainly roles like software developers, we're in that space. 
like to work from home, but even those we have in the office, as I said, at least twice a week. So given that then, how can organizations ensure that remote or hybrid workers are given equal visibility and opportunity for progression as compared to their in-office counterparts without being prejudiced it's a very interesting point that you raise. I actually saw an article, I think it was in the Washington Post, that uh, a survey in the United States that spoke about um, people being missed for promotion or people not getting the same bonuses if they aren't being seen. And that is a real problem, out of sight, out of mind, I guess. And so one of, you know, if you are not in the office, do you get the same recognition as someone who's working I mean, sorry, if you remotely, do you get the same recognition as someone who is in the office? That is a problem. That is a real, real problem. Um, And that's one of the reasons why I believe that you have to have some in-office time. Final question. Does it ultimately not come down to pure measurement of productivity? And if one or the other works, that's the direction that you go? There's more to a business or to running a business than just productivity. And the reason for that is, is that if it's just productivity, then everything can just be outsourced and everyone is an independent contractor. And in fact, many people working from or working remotely or working from home seem to start acting like they're independent contractors rather than taking on the culture of the business that they're working for. There's more to to a job than just pure productivity. All right, Norman Kretzmer, thank you very much indeed for the insight. And just before we go, we asked on our daily poll Monday, how can border security be improved to prevent illegal entry? One was invest in advanced technology, increase collaboration with law enforcement or foster strong relationships with border communities and a clear majority saying the tech option is the only way forward. Today, we're asking on the back of the interview that we've just had what your preferred working arrangement is post-COVID-19, full-time office-based hybrid model or full-time remote work. If you'd like to participate, go to MoneyWeb on Twitter X, also on our LinkedIn page. I'll have the results on the show on Wednesday. MoneyWeb at midday. We are live at noon weekdays. We're then up as a podcast. Thank you for listening and goodbye.